Okay, we have seen a Goliath, Goliath, and we go back uh, down to David. Uh, the last case example close to my heart, uh, neurodeflection for Tavi, establishing clinical need and approval pathway. Uh, the case example will be given by Paulina Margolis from Keystone Heart, and we have Alexandra Lansky, Pascal, Robert, Michael Joner, Perry Bridger on the panel, and I hand over the moderation to Mike Mullen from the Heart Hospital. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andreas. So, um, so this is going to be another very interesting topic. This is looking at a new technology as an adjunct to TAVA in terms of uh, neuroprotection. And I guess the questions are, what is its role? How do we integrate it into clinical practice? And, uh, and, and at what cost in what is already a very expensive uh, procedure? All right, thank you very much. Uh, I would present to you a totally different clinical challenge, which is very interesting, because after all, we're talking about brain. And you would think that it matters to protect the brain. So Alexandra gave this talk to me, establishing clinical need. We have to establish a clinical need. Don't you think there's a need already? And approval pathway. So let me take you through my slides. So brain protection, Tavi. Uh, in current uh, population of patients with about 50% one year expected mortality, 5% uh, stroke risk, and 75% risk of new DWI lesions have been considered tolerable. However, reducing brain damage even in this cohort should be highly desirable. Less sick cohort that has a surgical alternative, cerebral protection, we think should be mandatory. And it is even less acceptable to have this level of stroke and cognitive decline risk in a younger patient population. So we have not had any problems with our device. It is a little deflector that you advance through the femoral artery where you take pigtail catheter anyways before TAVR, and it sits right there in front of your cerebral branches. The first design of the catheter was little cumbersome to load and little cumbersome to put in place, but the results of our CE mark approval study were very positive. There were absolutely no safety issues, 80% of the time the device covered all these three cerebral branches, and we had about 60% less total lesion volume in the brain of these new lesions. So it's very safe. Now the second generation device that has just been approved is very easy to put in place, good visibility, maneuverability, and, uh, and the company is kind of facing problems trying to raise money, and why is that? So, First of all, reducing the number of strokes is highly desirable, but difficult to prove clinically. If you have four to five percent stroke risk, that means that you need to have very long, very close clinical study in patients with already very high number of other comorbidities. <coughs> For a startup company, very difficult. But reducing the number of new DWRI MRI lesions, which about 75% of patients have, is a very real goal and meaningful target, but establishing the awareness and importance of these lesions has been a challenge. And it's also very interesting to, uh, that what we have learned, that we have not had any problems is that establishing the importance of these lesions with our regulatory authorities like FDA. 
is our clinicians. So, when you look at the data, just this year, and only in the US, about half a million people will have new lesions in their brain due to cardiovascular procedures. So, what have we heard? We have heard establishing the critical need. Uh, the, oh my God, those DWI lesions, you, you see them all the time, but they go away. After two weeks, they're not there anymore. Of course they're not there anymore because DWRI is based on molecular water molecule movements. When the infrared in your brain gets scarred, there's no water molecule movements. There's no movement anymore. And we have clearly established that with animal studies. So that's one of the arguments that people throw out there all the time. How about the next one? Well, these lesions don't cause any clinical symptoms. Well, they do cause clinical symptoms is if you study the clinical symptoms with appropriate uh, tests. So what we have seen. Most studies with complete neurocognitive battery examining the association between neurocognitive decline, dementia, and brain infarcts so consistent link between the three. If you look at all these studies, none of them are TAVR studies. Okay, patients with a new DWR lesions had lots of neurocognitive decline, new lesions correlated with new mental chains. Patients with new DWR lesions had lots of neurocognitive decline, correlated with neurocognitive decline. Patients with infrared links were associated with memory loss, where uh, doubled the risk of dementia. Lesions were significant predictor of neurocognitive decline. 56% decline acutely and 21% decline at three years. So it has clearly been established. But what happened with the Tara studies? And it's very interesting, of course, the Tara companies don't want to have any accessory tools there anymore. This is complex enough and ex very expensive, and <laughs> let's just put the valve in place and go away. And uh, many of the physicians who work with these diver devices and have been developing it, they also they don't really think that it's so important. But they have done some studies with their testing and with studies. But unfortunately, they, all the screening instruments used in TAVI studies are not sensitive enough to detect real cognitive change. They have used either NIHSS tests, which is just you know, designed to scale the stroke. It's just for stroke. It's near, not neurocognitive decline. Or they have used M, uh, MRS testing. That's also designed for stroke uh, patients, just to fo follow up them, long-term disability. Or they have used MMS, uh, which is mini mental state exam, which is also just a very simple screening tool. So if you look at all these studies that have done have studies, and you, but let's see what test they have used. <laughs> NIHSS, 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 NIHSS. There were no defined uh, tests, NIHSN or MMSE, NIHSS. There's no way that you can prove that there is any neurocognitive decline if you don't even test it. So, but it all adds up. So what is this neurocognitive dec decline? Why it is important? Infos associated with brain volume reduction but importantly also with detectably lower cognition. Cognitive decline relates directly to loss of brain substance with progression of lesion burden. Therefore, brain infarcts will ultimately affect cognition. So to think about it in a simple way, what is cognition? You, uh, first of all, it, it impacts your memory, 
you may think that uh, you may not be able to drive a car. You might even remember, what is that? Is that a car? Or what is it? You either have you lose your logistic thinking, you start losing your balancing thing, and you're just not the same. You may lose your personality. All this, as everything is neurocognition. It, it, uh, you might not be able to stay home anymore because you think that you put a cuckoo off, but you actually put it on. So, uh, but think about the Kerplunk analogy. You all know this game. So you pull these sticks out. With each stick you remove, you are taking out one small set of neurons, just like in this game. So you keep pulling these sticks out. Initially, you may not notice any change in the marbles, and marbles stay there. But eventually, you will begin to lose all your marbles. <laughs> That's neurocognition. <coughs> so, um, so our uh, approval pathway, like I said, has been very nice and simple and easy. But to convince people that, yes, you really have to protect the brain and get the support, that's really definitely been a challenge. So our CMOC approval was relatively uncomplicated, like I said earlier. It was a little bit costly because of the heparin coding of the, of the device. Um, and also our pre-IDE process with FDA it was very productive. It was very timely, respectful. They agreed on the primary endpoint being MRI lesions. Even FDA understands the importance of those lesions. We received advice on the number <laughs> of patients needed for the randomized control study and the percent of patients eligible for US study. Not too bad. A little bit over 200 patients, very nice and simple. We got clarification on the preclinical documents needed for the IDE. And we are right now in the middle of uh, submitting our IDE packets to FDA. So as a summary, I think our biggest challenge has been education. And, but fortunately, our regulatory path so far has been quite uncomplicated. Thank you. So, Pauline, do you have CMARC as yet? Yes, yes, we do. And in the second generation, also. And what's your plan now? You've got CMARC in terms of uh, are you going to commercialise the device, or is it just continuing clinical trials? Yeah, we will. The, the second generation that has just been um, approved, we will definitely commercialise, and we are starting. Um, Andreas actually is a PI with um, Alexandra on the next study that we're going to do in Europe. It's called Deflect Three. And we're going to randomize patients for either uh, brain protection or no brain protection. And basically, we're doing exactly the similar study then for FDA. So, so let me just open this up to discussion. I mean, Alexandra, I think you're down there somewhere. Paulina says that neuroprotection should now be mandatory in TAVI procedures. Is that something you think they'll be able to sell to clinicians? I'm not sure I can say today that it should be mandatory. I think one of the issues with TAVO is that the patient risk is so high that at least in the patients that are being treated currently with TAVO, absolutely. I mean, what we've seen and the data that we've looked at from Deflect1, you were the principal investigator, 100% of these patients are getting hits. We're seeing this from other, other subsets as well, from, um, you know, other... Uh, devices that are being evaluated. So I think the risk is extremely high. Should all patients receiving 
endovascular procedures, I think that's the question you're asking, receive neuroprotection, I don't know. I think there's some level of restratification that needs to happen, and we need to take a look at that. But I think in the context of TAVA, I'm certainly very um, concerned about the, the um, you know, frequency and the burden, the ischemic burden on these patients. I think this is a big deal. It's also been very interesting to see that um, actually Keystone Heart has been approached by um, cardiovascular surgeons like Michael Mack and like, and a physician who do AF ablation to uh, use our device to uh, reduce the hits during their procedures. It's not, it's one of those things that we didn't first even think about it, but you know, they are asking to um, start using their device. And of course, you know, we will discuss with them as soon as we get our cigarette generation out. So David, does that, there is a little bit of a misconnect here with, with Pauline. So most, at least from my understanding of the literature, I know a little bit about it, is the fact 50% of the strokes are 30 days and greater. So should we really think about what the pathology is of the clinically significant? I, I have no doubt that you get MRI positive hits with a guide wire crossing a, a, a stenosed valve. And nobody has ever done that randomization to looking just for manipulation. So I say, uh, if you make uh, the, the whole point about making it mandatory, then you're missing 50%. Because a lot of the stuff happens 30 days after that you have removed your devices and your protection. How do you make concordance of all these facts? So well, I, I would say that any stroke that you can prevent should be prevented. If you can prevent 50% of the strokes, just by with simple little deflection, and I, I would have tiver, I would like to have some sort no. of protection to my brain, and especially you know, also with this uh, risk of dementia and neurocognitive decline. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, mis I'm misspeaking, but I think the fact that you have a positive MRI does not mean necessarily it's a clinically evident stroke. You can talk about... No, that's totally different thing. That's the clinically relevant stroke, or it's this clinically so-called, we call it silent stroke, but it leads to re neurocognitive decline. It has clearly been shown that the more you have these small little DWI lesions in your brain, the more less you have brain reserve, and your brain reserve is directly related to, to your neurocognitive function. What you remember, what you function, and what can you do, you know, all these different aspects that I was uh, explaining. It's not a clinically relevant stroke at all. I mean, I think, you know, because we, obviously we could argue about the, the science and the clinical aspects, but in terms of whether, you, I mean, one of the real questions with this session is whether this is a technology or how this technology could be commercialized and whether the data is sufficient. And I think, you know, first of all, whether, to me, whether it's sufficient to convince clinicians to use this, because it's, in theory, it's a device mm -hmm. that's going to, be, have to have to be used in every procedure. It's going to add significant additional cost to an ordinary expensive uh, procedure. I'd be, so I'd be interested in the other opinion of the other clinicians, uh, Pascal and Michael, the, the other, their opinion on whether they would be convinced that this is a technology they would like to use in their patients and that they would be willing to pay for it. I mean, in general, I agree that we should, of course, do anything to reduce stroke, the stroke risk, and this is one of the, uh, probably still of the limitations of TAVR against surgery, at least based on the first trials. And uh, so in general, I would certainly be keen to, to do anything to reduce stroke. On the other hand, I think that the general trend in Tavar is to, to make it simpler and simpler and to do uh, 
um, you know, to, uh, it, to have smaller she size, to have, uh, have less bleeding risk. We can probably, uh, a lot of centers now do tether on the local anesthesia. And then to, it's very challenging, I think, even if you have um, good data to then sell it to clinicians and say, you know, it, it gets easier and easier, um, more people can do it, now we make it more complicated again. I think it will be a, a difficult selling point and you will have to have quite good data. I would challenge you with that because majority of the hits that go to the brain happen when you deploy the valve. I think the point is that yeah, <laughs> it doesn't, the sheet side doesn't matter. You, you'd have to convince clinicians that this is something that they, but without the data, it's very hard to make, very, to know, I mean, because most of the data you have is historical, and it, without a randomized controlled trial, it's very difficult to know whether in the current era, whether we would, see this, we would even see the same number of hits. So, so the evidence, just to be clear, the evidence that we currently have is that at least on historical controls, we're looking at about a 50 to 60% reduction in the amount of ischemic burden. I think that's very, that's, that's key. Uh, the vast majority of these patients have embolic um, silent lesions during the procedure. Now, the issue of stroke, um, clinically overt stroke, 50% of those strokes are actually procedural. Mm -hmm. So while there is a risk that, that is persistent, and that goes along with the, with the uh, comorbidities of the patients, clearly there's a, there's a procedural risk. And if a procedure such as this one that is relatively straightforward can prevent those, obviously that's, that's of benefit. But you need to show that. You need to show that in randomized clinical trials, and that's what's happening. How long does it take the uh, neurocognitive deficits to show up after these events? I mean, if, you're, if you're looking at this gradual decline, you know, and you have an 85-year-old patient who already has some loss of volume, are you waiting five years, or is this like within weeks? So it's very, that's a very good question. So first of all, uh, when you replace the valve and you have better blood flow to the brain, you know, all the patients on average improve. And what we have seen, it is very interesting. First of all, it has been shown that when you have these small little heads, you have neurological decline. And usually they do those studies within a three months, uh, let's say one week, three months, and one year later. Like, is that effect persistent, or does it go away? Brain is an incredible organ. You can learn things from other side, as we all know. What we have done, we have looked at, look at the data at, uh, first of before the TAVI, then uh, seven days later, and then at 30 days. And in general, there is an improvement, because they have all better flow, which is absolutely fantastic. But then, uh, before the TAVR, the neurocognition score has a unimodal distribution, like standard deviation, normal standard deviation. But after a TAVR, it's already at seven days, and it's exactly the same at 30 days. It is bimodal. Some patients improve even more, and some patients get worse. And those patients that got worse, there seems to be a correlation with the volume of the new DWLs. And the thing here is that we all have these little hits. Like we have saying in Scandinavia, at least there's a snow on the ground, there's a snow on the roof as well. So 
easily atherosclerosis, all that stuff. It's hard and it's all over the place. So it happens to everyone. So yes, very quickly. Not a process. No, not at all. Like Andrea sometimes said, oh. New patient comes back after you know three months checkup. Yeah, the mother is feeling great, but she's just not mother anymore. I mean, this is well known after cardiac surgery. It's well known after virtually everything. Yeah. And in the population of patients we're studying, it may well be part of their natural history of uh, as well. So that's why again we need randomised. I think one of the challenges is that you're looking at two two procedures here. If you take the TAVI, that's one, and the neuroprotective two, that are both in highly developed highly developing stages. They're not fully developed. I mean, you look at the data that came out from even partner and partner continued access, they showed a 100% drop in their rate of strokes with that, with just changing the device. You look at what's come out from the core valve initial study compared to, again, a much lower rate of stroke. What would seem to be interesting would be to take another procedure that's established. The surgeons do aortic valves are the same way. You see a ton of DWMRI hits here. There, you're not, gonna, you're not in a procedure that's changing. You can put this up there, see how it does, and prove the effectiveness of it where you have one constant. I think the difficulty with doing this with TAVI is that because it's so rapidly changing, because so many different devices are being used, it's hard to get that one constant. I don't really think that the stroke rate has changed so much. It's about 4 to 5% pretty consistently nowadays, isn't it? Well, it's reported that, well, with core valve, it's reported at much lower than 2%, that. 2%. 2%. It's almost equivalent to surgery. 2%. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, well, even at one year after the, the partner trial, the stroke rate is equivalent in the surgical yeah. and uh, tabular arms. Yeah, nobody is arguing against the fact that to save cerebral matter is yeah. better. Nobody's arguing, but I'm, I'm, I'm having still a problem about, A, the power of your, of your trials, and more importantly, to f the fact that the DWMRI hits means something, take away the historical story that we have. On a going forward basis, how do you prove it in a randomized trial that these have clinical significance? Well, I just showed you a slide, which were like 12 different, 12 di different studies that connected the DWL lesions with neurocognitive decline. But these were historical or prospective? All prospective, historical prospective studies. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying from a randomized trial, as an endpoint, you'll show the DWMRI hits, you show 40% reduction of them, that's fine, and you meet your endpoint. How does that translate in that trial? What's that endpoint that tests the All right, theory? so I'll, I'll let you know. So what we have also been working. So because this challenge that I, I clearly was faced when I started to work with Keystone Heart uh, one and a half years ago, I encased you know, an excellent SAB. So we have neurologists, we have neuropsychologists, and we have neuroradiologists, <laughs> in addition to, of course, cardiologists and imaging experts and all these different people. And we have now developed, we hope that in a very nice, simple, not too long, sensitive uh, neurocognitive testing that will be applied to all our clinical studies. But then on the other hand, it's, it really is, is, I'm a scientist as well, in addition to international cardiologist. It is surprising to me that there's so much literature, prospective, excellent studies, hundreds of patients, which correlate these lesions with neurocognitive decline, and still people are asking, well, are they important? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that's because nobody's really done, done the studies that's properly. And, and I think this is a bit like the last. <coughs> it's intuitive that you want to buy a right. stent, but you do need to demonstrate the benefits. So, so let me turn this around, um, Maurice. And you look at all the carotid protection devices that were, that were approved on the basis of being able to collect material in a little cage. And that got them approval. So how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, the, the carotid, uh, carotid distal protection, I call it in the United States legal protection. It's not really distal protection. It does nothing. <laughs> it, the, the thing, you can see the device moving up and down, up and down as you're doing the carotid. What is it trapping? Nothing. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily the, the, the perfect analogy. But there, too, uh, they got approval on the basis of finding some stuff. In the, uh, so I'm worried that, that finding some stuff that is clinically maybe, maybe not is no different than DWMRI, maybe, maybe not. So maybe the cognitive testing is going to be more helpful, and I hope so, and that will put the question to rest. I mean, I guess even more importantly, maybe, is it going to be reimbursed without hard clinical data? I mean, this is, in, in, the, in the UK and in Europe, is a, this is still a very expensive procedure, and the idea that we would have an additional, you know, three, 4,000 pounds per, per procedure based on intuition, I think it's going to be really hard for us. For well, I, th I think to, to the credit, though, of, of this company, um, they are investing in actually doing prospective clinical trials. So they have currently two prospective clinical trials that are powered for DWMRI with systematic, and, and they have gone out to try and find the appropriate uh, neurocognitive um, function testing that is sensitive enough, that is appropriate for this patient population, where there is comprehensive training in all, you know, uh, institutions, et cetera, to be able to actually make that link. So I think to the credit of, of the company, hopefully for the first time we'll be able to, to show this in a randomized uh, with With Tever. Because we have seen it with other cardiovascular procedures okay. already. I don't understand what the difference is. Lesion is lesion, but... So <laughs> let, let me just, before, before Mike wraps uh, the session up, um, let me ask Maurice and all the doubters uh, in the audience. I'm, I'm not a doubter. Um, I'm just... No, no. <laughs> you know, we, we've, you know back, back to what we want to discuss here, and that is bring an idea into a device, into a first-in-man's, and then what are the barriers? At the moment for this one, which is a beautiful concept and some really intriguing initial data, um, but not a massive need in terms of preventing the big stroke because the big stroke seems to go away and, and we don't see many of those, but still potentially something that is needed and that you would want your mother to have if she had a TAVI, right? So let me turn this around. If the company does this randomized trial, and an US IDE trial, a couple of hundred patients. And there is a clear benefit in terms of not only reduction of the volume of brain that goes away after TAVI, but also uh, the patients are a bit brighter and uh, they have less cognitive decline and um, maybe not a significant reduction in stroke. We wouldn't expect that at that low rate, uh, but definitely not more. But a significant benefit in the measures uh, that were predefined. Does that make the clinicians take it up? Will that constitute something that would go into guidelines? Will that make it mandatory? I mean, that's the big bet for the company yeah. at the moment. Maurice. The, the big point about that is there's a lot of ifs in your statement. And then let's assume that all these ifs do meet the, the positive line. There is the other question is how simple it is to place 
how much cake. complications you have. And don't forget that the TAVI population mean age 82. So you're going to make him brighter from 82 to 83. I bet. It Just answer I my question. <laughs> but I think the answer is if, if you huh? do all those things yeah. and if you show benefit, then of course, yes, I think, but I, I think we would use it. You would use it, but you would hope it wouldn't be required right away because if you're using it and it's complicated and that complication results in another day in the ICU, we all know that another day in the ICU or another half a day is going to be associated with a significant clinical. It, well, it takes pretty it much two minutes, to, two minutes to put in place. It's yeah. very simple. All of these things come out of a proper randomized yeah. trial, don't they? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's been, we're running a little bit over time, okay. but I think it's been a great session. Thank you, Paulina. Thank you to all the panel members. And uh, I guess we're going to break for ten minutes. Ten minutes.